The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the 10th chapter. The Gospel is printed on the back of your bulletin, or you can follow along in your pew Bibles on page 822. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Word of God, word of life. Grace to you and peace from God, our Creator, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. This story doesn't sound like very good news this morning, does it? Every time this story comes up, we squirm in our seats a little bit. And then we come up with creative ways to manage this story, to make it feel better about what it means for us. You might have heard some of these before, and I, I'm sure I've preached some of these before. The rich man didn't actually keep the law, so his business about giving up his possessions was, it was just Jesus' way of calling his bluff. Okay, that's, that's one you may have heard before. Okay, here's the second one. Nobody can actually keep the law, so nobody can give up everything either. It's a rhetorical device to call our bluff and once we grasp that, we're off the hook. All right, I know I've preached that before. Okay, giving up everything was a command to this particular rich man, but only to him. It's not a claim on anybody else, uh, but it's an object lesson. Okay? Uh, here's another one. It was a real command from Jesus, but it only applies to the rich, and all of us can think of someone richer, so of course it doesn't apply to us. I also am pretty sure I've preached that before. Uh, and then, here's another one. The disciples, they infer just the opposite, right? Everyone is rich, 
because we can always think of someone who is poorer than we are. Luckily, Jesus gives us the ultimate divine out. We can't do it, but God can. We can go back to the mall. Or, or, if we're still in the game at this point, uh, we can point at our efforts at discipleship like Peter did, and then we can say, well, great, William will be rewarded with a hundredfold of everything as long as we somehow give up everything we have, preferably in our hearts, not our actual stuff, um, like detachment from material things as an act of spiritual self-will. And we'll get something even better in return, right? Uh, which then makes Jesus into some kind of prosperity preacher, which isn't really what Jesus is about. So, okay, that's a lot. That makes it easier for us to hear the story. And um, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll still have done one of those things in my sermon today, but I, I hope not. Uh, this is really hard. We don't like this story because... Wealth is seen as evidence of being blessed, right? In Jesus' time and today, right? Hashtag blessed on Facebook and Instagram, you know, beautiful houses and great interior decorating and designer clothes. Maybe not even designer clothes, just like nicer clothes than your neighbors. And so, like the disciples, we're a little bit confused. We might be thinking... God gave me the gifts and the talents to be able to earn this money. I've worked hard. Why can't I enjoy it? I give my offering to the church, and I give to all the missions of the month, and I give to other organizations outside the church. I mean, I'm blessing people with my blessings. That surely should get me into heaven, right? And our question echoes the one of the disciples. If this rich man who has followed all the rules, who from all outward appearances is blessed by God, if this guy can't get into heaven, who can? But I don't think this story is really about getting into heaven or eternal life. This story is about discipleship. Now, this is a way of managing the story, I know. But it's also the truth. The work of salvation is for God to accomplish through Christ. No amount of rule following or generous financial giving will earn it or make us more worthy of it. This is the good news. For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. But if you're like me, someone who likes to know the rules of the game and follow them exactly, someone who likes the satisfaction of conquering a challenge and earning the praise of others through my hard work, then this good news upsets everything. <laughs> because I can't earn it. I can't achieve it. I can't, like, make a banner or a certificate at the end of Lent and say, like, woohoo, I did it perfectly. Last year during Lent, the Women's Discipleship Group did the seven experiment by Jen Hatmaker. I'm sure you remember because I talk about it all the time. But it was life-changing. It's an exercise in fasting from excess. 
And in her introduction, she writes this. Jesus made it clear that as rich believers, even well-behaved, we have a serious blind spot. And the thing about a blind spot is that we're blind to it. We don't even know what we can't see. And this is far more insidious than our most visible sin issue. If we can set our defensiveness aside and take Jesus at his word, he is pointing out our blind spot. We're a double-edged sword. Privileged believers because we are so incredibly resourced with the potential to battle disparity. But those same resources trap and entangle us and we become unwilling to part with them. Meanwhile, the suffering happening on our watch is a tragedy while we hold all the cards. We are indulged and blind saying, let them eat cake, and neglecting our responsibility as privileged power holders, redeemed gospel bearers. That doesn't sound like good news anymore, does it? So what do we do? How can we course correct so that we don't also walk away shocked and grieving like the man in our story? Well, coincidentally, we are again in the season of Lent, this time where we take up a discipline, often one of fasting, to repent, to turn our lives and habits and actions in a new direction, to leave behind meaningless rituals and rules, and move into a deeper relationship with God. And Jen goes on to say this about fasting. Fasting is an intentional reduction, a deliberate abstinence to summon God's movement in our lives. A fast creates margin for God to move, temporarily changing our routine of comfort jars us off high center. A fast is not something we necessarily offer to God, but it, it assists us in offering all of ourselves. Until I went through that book and the experiment with the women's discipleship group, I hated Lent. I hated fasting. I treated it like a renewal of my New Year's resolution. Give up Diet Coke. Give up white sugar or white flour. Watch less TV. Do more yoga. Whatever. Something uh, kind of shallow, really. But I always felt very spiritual if I could abstain from it for all 40 days. But lately, I've come to realize that that's not really the point. This story and Mark's gospel is relentless, giving us difficult stories and confused disciples, and it seems not so much to invite faith, but to prove again and again the impossibility of faith. Almost as impossible as a camel going through the eye of a needle or a rich person entering the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus says, for mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. So as we enter into Lent, how can we shift our practice of fasting? Maybe instead of giving up chocolate or soda or TV, you might ask yourself this year, how does my Lent practice support who I am? Remembering that who you are is a disciple, 
a follower of Jesus, a redeemed gospel bearer, a beloved child of God. And then, how are you going to remember when you fail? Because part of Lent is failing at the practice that you are going to do. How are you going to turn to God and let your ashy, small self be imperfect? I wonder how the man in our story would have responded to that question. If he would have turned back to God in his shock and his grief and see how that might have deepened their relationship. God doesn't want our perfection or our best rule following or our neat and orderly controlled life. God calls us to risk greatly, to love daringly, and to be bold in our faith, trusting that when we fail, and we will, that the grace of God is there to catch us. May we know this and experience it this season of Lent. Amen.